sometimes, you know, hard times make for the times when you can actually get things done and have, you know, really exceptional outcomes. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Matthew Prince. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on. So got us started. I assume like the day you're born, you come out, you start seeing all the cybersecurity holes in the hospital. You start, you know, repairing the network like immediately, right? That's what you were into? Probably not. Although I was, when I was six years old in 1980, which shows how old I am, I guess, my grandmother gave me an Apple II Plus and I took to it just like a duck to water. And I never liked like playing the video games. I was always like, like be the one who is like making the video games. And so I did things that made me, you know, super popular in, you know, high school, like go to computer camp and, and other things. And I, and I, and we did actually, I remember there was a the lab administrator at our high school lab thought that putting these stupid little smiley eyes in the menu bar of the Mac was, was funny and and it slowed everything down and it wasted just a ton of, of RAM, which at the time was, was, and so we, um, a friend of mine and I reprogrammed the uh, lab computers to think that the eyes were a computer virus. And so it would just keep wiping it off. And she was super frustrated that her eyes would go away. So, so I, I think from an early age, um, you know, I, I enjoyed the space. I, I tried to get away from that, you know, though, frankly, I, I was the guy who, you know, when I graduated college in 96, had offers to go work at, you know, Microsoft and Yahoo and Netscape. And I remember thinking, oh, those companies are never going to go anywhere. <laughs> it was pretty stupid. And so instead, you know, went to went to law school. So I, I think I was pretty good at computers for a long time. I think I was interested in sort of the puzzles that they that they presented. But um, I tried my darndest to to run in any other direction, and, and yet ended up back spending time with computers, networks, and security. And so to take a big step back, you got your first computer set at six. What kind of a kid were you like in the beginning, like those first few years? Like, were you more of an extrovert, outgoing, active, or did you like books? Like, what were you at that four, five, six, seven range? Like, what kind of a personality were you? I was the sort of nerdy, not very cool. I remember my dad at some point said, you know, go out and don't come back until you're escorted by the police. <laughs> and I remember sitting on the front stoop of the of my my house with a fr- with a friend and and we literally were like what could we possibly do to get escorted back by the police and we couldn't even come up with it so I was pretty introverted and I, I think you know I was the oldest kid so I was you know a little bit precocious I was pretty comfortable around adults and I, and I you know I had good friends but it was I was not a big partier or <laughs> doing anything that was was very fun and were your parents somewhere were they more introverted or were they sounds like your dad was trying to push you out of your comfort zone a little bit. Was he, what was he like? I mean, so both my parents, again, I don't think they would describe themselves this way, but both of them were entrepreneurs. My dad did all kinds of different things. He started a stock brokerage firm to, he, he owned a bunch of restaurants. He, he did drive time talk radio. He was, he was a TV host. So he was sort of did all, all kinds of different things. And he, but both my, I'm fortunate that both my parents are still alive. And he was that, he was the sort of person that, you know, for a period of time, you know, every, every small town has like the guy who does like the local car commercial or the local 
you know, if you're in New York, it's the the guy who's the whiz or you know, all, all the different things. My dad was that guy for the Ponderosa restaurants. And so he would be on TV saying, you get the steak, the salad bar, the all you can eat Sunday, you know, come on down, you know, $9.95 or whatever, whatever it was. And so he was he was pretty gregarious and outgoing. I think my mom's a little bit more introverted. She was also an entrepreneur. She had a, a series of of gift stores that were um sort of like the only reason I could get a date in in high school was because all of all the girls wanted to work at my mom's store because <laughs> my mom had good taste and and sold cool things that that seventeen year old girls liked. So you go through college, English lit, and at that point were you still thinking like I'm going to get out of this and start something? Were you working on businesses during your undergrad, or kind of where was your path? Like what were you thinking was the path after? Were you not? Were you just enjoying college and focused? I didn't really do much entrepreneurial in, in college. I, I um. You know, the closest thing was I, I worked for the the student newspaper. I was the editor of the newspaper, and and there there was definitely you know you could trade you know ad space for for kegs of beer or whatever, which was I guess a little bit entrepreneurial. But my plan was to become a lawyer. My grandfather on well, my father's side was was an attorney, and my uncle was an attorney, and they both seemed to have pretty good lives. And I thought that seems like a good path, and I'll I'll go and do that. And um, you know, at the time, it was sort of the first, it was the very, very, very beginning of the first dot-com. It was 1996. And I had actually kind of gotten burned out on on the internet in some in some ways. We'd, we'd started what was an online-only magazine. There were four, four students that that did it. And and it was just the web was so flaky. Browsers were so flaky, you know, and you, you couldn't get anyone on campus to read the thing. And so, I mean, you couldn't get, really get anyone to write the thing. And so it was, um, and I would get emails from, I remember getting an email from Japan saying like, you know, in broken English, I love, love reading your, you know, the website, keep, keep, you know, publishing things. And I remember thinking, why do I care if anyone in, in Japan is, is reading this? And it was just incredibly short-sighted to me and literally wrote my college thesis on why, you know, the internet was a fad, which was, which I've, I guess everything I've done subsequently is a little bit of penance for that. And so I turned down the offers to go work at a bunch of tech companies who were trying to hire me to be, you know, what this thing called a, a product manager. And I had no idea what that meant. And instead, you know, applied to law school. I ended up deferring admission for, for a year and, and, and worked as a ski instructor uh, for that year. And what was the law school thing? Like, where'd that come from? I think a little bit, again, my, my, my grandfather and my uncle were attorneys. I was pretty good at standardized tests. And so, like, I did well on the LSAT. And again, like that was almost enough reason to put in applications. And I got into a, you know, a bunch of good law schools. And so I thought, oh, that, you know, that, I know how to do that. I know that what that path is, is like, and I, and I didn't really like any of the other paths that I saw. And again, I really wasn't thinking I would, I would start something at that, at that point. I was just like, okay, this is, this is a, the thing you go do. And I thought what lawyers did was, was what you saw like on Perry Mason standing up and arguing in front of, of courts, which is not what lawyers do. And I remember specifically thinking, I don't want to spend the rest of my life sitting in front of a computer writing code. And so I'm curious, just because I'm not someone that can function on two, three hours of sleep. And I you know, wish I was one of those people, but it just, I would not, I don't think I would have, I'd have a company anymore. How did you find yourself able to cope with that? Is that just you're built that way that you don't need much sleep? No, I, I don't function on, uh, on, yeah. on back to sleep. Yeah. Hours of sleep. I sleep a lot. And to be honest, I, I just don't think that in the early days of Cloudflare, I was functioning all that well. but we had to because we opened the doors up and the next thing you knew there were every day you know hundreds of websites signing up to rely on us and we had a tiny team and things would break 
because that's the nature of it. And if anything broke, you know, it wasn't like if something breaks in most companies, you can, and you can't fix it until business hours. That's fine. But for us, if something broke, you know, you had to do it. So my phone was just going off. I was taking a pager rotation early on and I was having to log in and, you know, fix things in the middle of the night. So, you know, again, I, I think it wasn't a, ro- it wasn't romantic. It was just what we had to do in order to, in order to succeed. And so to quickly, cause I want to get to that point in the path, you had this company, you work, this startup you worked for. Did you go straight from that to starting Cloudflare? Cloudflare, excuse me. No, I, I wandered in the wilderness. I mean, so, so Groupworks imploded and I tried to get back on the lawyer path, but it's sort of like one of those things, once you're off, it's really hard to get back on. And so I tried to do a number of things. I applied to be a, a public school teacher in Chicago because there was a huge shortage of math and computer science teachers. And they basically, even though I kind of passed all the tests and everything, they said, you have a law degree, so you're not going to stick around. So we won't, won't let you teach here, which was, which was super frustrating because I was like, I'm being, I like, should I have lied and yeah. I had less education? So in college, you have this project, meet up with your partners and you start working on it. And as you said, you were saying you were bankrupt. Your mom was helping you with rent 2009. Yeah. And, and, and it was, if we hadn't raised money in November of 2009, yeah. I, you know, for Cloudflare, I don't know how I would have paid, paid my rent at all. And so, you know, it was, yeah, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, is important to acknowledge is, you know, obviously I had a, had a family that I wasn't going to starve in the streets. And I think one of the things that is really hard about entrepreneurship is that it is, it is much more accessible to people who, who come from more privileged backgrounds and, and have families that, that can support them. But I think had, had that not worked, I'd probably be running my dad's hooters. Yeah. Got it. And so how were you able to raise that money? 2009 wasn't a great year for fundraising from what I remember. No, it was tough. It was, you know, we were coming out of the global recession. So in business school, we'd entered a business plan competition and we ended up winning. And then that gave us a little bit of money so we could, so again, I could, I could kind of scrape, scrape things by, but we came out and it was, um, it was, it was pretty tough for tech companies. And I remember we got introduced to a guy named Ray Rothrock at Venrock, who's one of the sort of leading security investors at the time. And the first meeting with him, we described what we were going to do at Cloudflare. And he, and he said, I can't remember what the number was. It was, I think he said, you know, I have the authority to write a quarter million dollar check to you without checking with the rest of the partnership. Would you take it? And I said, no. And Michelle kicked me under the table. Like, what are you doing? We need this. <laughs> and, and he said, well, I guess, I guess I gotta get you in front of the rest of the partnership. And so we, they were the only venture capital firm we pitched. We did not run up and down Sand Hill Road. We kind of, we were much more strategic about it. And we were the only non-life sciences or medical tech company that they funded in all of 2009. And I think we were the, we now have turned into, you know, Venerox is a story of venture capital firm. And they were the original investors in Apple and Intel and others. And, and we, but we, we today, I think are, are their, their biggest return ever. So I think sometimes, you know, hard times make for the times when you can actually get things done and have, you know, really exceptional outcomes. Yeah. It, it makes you focus on what's important a lot of the times versus getting distracted too. Yeah, totally. And, and it keeps us frugal. I mean, we've just been yeah. Cloudflare's business from the beginning, like in order for it to work, we had to figure out how to process a bite of information as cost effectively as, as possible. I mean, a huge percentage of the internet runs through us and doesn't pay us and we don't make any money off of it directly. 
And so from the beginning, we had to figure out how to be really, really frugal. And I think coming out of you know, really challenging economic times made us a better, better company. And I think a lot of the companies that are, that are getting founded today, you'll see more kind of outsized success from, from the companies that were started today versus the ones that were started you know, just two years ago. Yep. Agreed. And so you were alluding to it, but it sounds like, so the moment you hit the market, this thing just took off and you were just, the phone was ringing off the hook. So people saw the need. What was the pitch? Like what attracted people to this immediately? Yeah. So when, at Unspam, the company that they got sued for, we, we had this really cool technical team and not that many interesting technical projects. So we were always doing kind of fun things on the side. So we'd, we'd had, we built a system to predict the winners of the Sundance Film Festival, which is hosted in, in my hometown in advance using Bayesian statistical analysis, which today someone would call AI, but it's just statistics. We did this thing. We had a browser plugin that would allow you before Gmail and all these things existed. You know, the Google cookie was just what you searched. And so what the browser plugin would do is it would trade your Google cookie with somebody else's Google cookie. And with the idea being that you can't really, you can't really eliminate the ability for Google to track you but you can make it so that the tracking is, is full of just a bunch of garbage because you mix it together and it can't do it. So call it lost in the crowd. And these are all just sort of fun things that we did kind of on the side to keep a cool engineering team um, excited about, about work. And then one of them was a thing called Project Honeypot, which was actually built to go present at Paul Graham, the guy who, who would go on to start Y Combinator, but this was before he had Y Combinator. He would host a, a conference at MIT called the MIT Anti-Spam Conference. And I was invited to speak and I went to Lee and said, hey, I need, I need some data to talk. It would be great to you know, build something where we can track kind of how the spam economy works. And so we built this thing that would basically hand out unique email addresses to spammers and you could track you know, how if somebody who was promoting Viagra spam was also promoting like diploma spam or whatever it was. And it was, it was super cool. And we um, got enough data to sort of give a cool talk at, at Paul's conference. And then we put it in the corner and forgot about it. And every day, though, people kept signing up for it, signing up for it, signing up for it. And there were about 100,000 people that had signed up for this thing. And they just to track kind of how bad guys. And we kept adding little features here and there where it wasn't just spammers, people who would like try and hack your login forms and other, other things. And so you know, when, I, when I was pitching various ideas to Michelle, like I, one of them was uh, I was telling her about Project Honeypot and how you could turn these little things into it. And she's like, just perplexed why anyone would sign up for it. And I was like, well, they really want to, you know, stop, you know, track the spammers. And we, you know, sometimes we, you know, work with other, you know, security companies and, and, and she kept pushing like, why, why, why? And I finally said, you know, Michelle, I think eventually they hope that we'll build something that will actually stop these bad guys. Cause being a individual web administrator is a pain in the ass. And she was like, that's the idea. And it was, it was really interesting. I remember as good little business students, we had the school gave us like a thousand dollars to, you know, help with the, with get the business off the ground. We didn't know what to do. So we signed up for survey monkey and sent a survey out to like a thousand web administrators. And the first eight, we got like 10 questions in the survey. First eight questions were like on a scale of one to five, how does this make, you know, what do you, what do you think about this, that, or the other? It turns out those first eight questions were completely worthless in terms of the data that we got. But the last two questions were, you know, how does the problem of like web spam make you feel? And the other one was like, you know, if you were in charge, what would you do to the people who are behind this? And the responses from it were so visceral. I mean, people were just like, this is what makes me believe in the death penalty. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And reading that, I think that was what gave us the confidence. And so our initial beta users were all those, those Project Honeypot users. And they, you know, over the course of 2010, as we built the product, they gave us incredible feedback. And then we launched in September, on September 27th of 2010, 
And, um, you know, I think we started the day with about a thousand users and we ended the day with about 10,000 and it was just, and, and we, we hadn't had time to build any governors or limits or anything. And so I remember thinking, well, what do we do if like Yahoo signs up? And we were like, well, I guess we'll solve that problem if it happens. And it was, it was off to the races. How soon before Yahoo signed up? I don't think Yahoo ever signed up, but we got, it was pretty amazing. I think that like early South by Southwest signed up and there were some sort of big things that got, you know, a ton of traffic that were early, early, early customers. And that's again, why I didn't sleep because the, you know, my yeah. phone was busting. No, that time. totally makes sense. So how long did it take you before you felt like you, well, actually I'd say first, when was the first feeling of like, we did it, we made this a success. Like when did you have that first feeling of like, I've, arrived i'm not you never feel like you arrive if you're a true entrepreneur but i mean like that first like milestone where you're like wow we did something here when did that kick in so we um sort of inadvertently stumbled into this idea that basically would use the anniversary of our launch as an opportunity to release some new big feature or something and and the spirit of it was always how could we give back something instead of the world giving us a gift how could we give a gift back to the, the internet. So it was never, you know, a product or something that we would, we would make money off of. And I remember in 2014, we've been doing this for a few years at that point. And in 2014, someone on our team said, you know what we should do? We should make encryption free. And at that point, the only difference between the free version of our service and the paid version of our service was the paid version included encryption and the free version didn't. And we're like, that's a terrible idea. That's the only thing that's different. It's the only reason people pay us. And this young engineer on our team made a really compelling case. His name is Mathieu Turin. And he made this really compelling case that the future of the internet should be more encrypted and that it was inevitable that that was going to happen. And this is before Let's Encrypt or you know, any, any of these other things. And we could either be leaders or followers. And if we really believed that we were living up to our mission of, of helping build a better internet, we should be leaders in this space. And it was this huge challenge because it was a, you know, it was a business challenge because it, it like, how did we now create other value in, in the, our business? And it was a technical challenge because could we handle that much, you know, encryption, decryption tasks? And even just a challenge in terms of figuring out how we could, you had to buy certificates and how could we get that many certificates in a cost-effective way? And we kind of pulled it all together right ahead of, of the launch. And on September 27th of 2014, flipped a switch and basically... It was supposed to all go on at once. We had a few technical hiccups, so it actually took a couple of days. But um, there were all these services that would track how much of the internet was encrypted. And they were all kind of bouncing along at a certain percent. And then you saw on that day where we doubled the amount of the internet that was encrypted in, in effectively a week. And that was, I think, the first moment where I was like, wow, we, we not only did we do something that was meaningful, but we did something that was meaningfully better. And we did it for the right reason. And we were terrified that like it was going to completely destroy our business. And the number of people who paid us as a percentage went down ever so slightly. But what went, went, went up was instead of us getting about 100 people signing up a day, now we're getting like between 1,000 and 2,000 signing up every single day. And, so and how did you monetize that? What was the mon- new monetization strategy if you weren't charging for encryption? We, do, we just we added more features to the, the paid plans. And, and again, I think in the spirit of, you know, Clay Christensen was a, was a business school professor of mine. And the sort of idea of innovator's dilemma is that the, you've got to keep commodifying yourself and you've got to keep pushing the features that you used to charge for down. And so we just, we just built new things which were more and more valuable and added them. And I, I think we've continued to do that over time where we take things that we used to charge for and, and make them free and, and then come up with new, new ideas over time. And you basically, from what it sounds like, you basically doubled the level of encryption on the internet in a week. In a week. 
yeah. And it was, and, it, and, and, and I looked at that and we were like, that'll be in our obituaries. <laughs> and so let's start with like, what's next for you? You know, you've now had this massive company, you've been super successful with this. Actually, before I go there, did you ever expect to be here? Did you think like, like even at that point that you're going to be like, you know, the level of like wealth and success, was that even a driver of this at any point? I think I thought that we'd be, and I have the emails, Michelle and I would exchange on like, you know, what, what we thought was, was going to happen. I think we thought, you know, you always have to think that it's going to be somewhat successful. And so, you know, I thought that I thought I'd figure out something at some point where I, you know, I would live comfortably and in, in all kinds of those, those things. But I, I honestly, I don't think I knew what real wealth even looked like. And, and at some level, it's, it's kind of, it's a funny thing. There's not much about why, you know, what's, once you've gotten comfortable enough that you can pay, you know, you can reliably pay your rent, you can own your own car, you can take your family on vacation, you know, a couple times a year, you know, cars are cars and houses are houses. And there's not that much of a, I have, I have friends that have very, very fancy cars. And, you know, I, 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 up until recently didn't even really own a car. And so, you know, I don't think that it's, it's, once we got to that point, I don't think it's changed that much. And, And I have never really kept score based on how many dollars are in my, in my bank account, but it's a lot better today than it was when I was having to borrow money from my mom to pay my rent. Um, That sucked. And that's Uh, not that long ago. I mean, you're talking 14 14 years ago. Yeah. So I I think that I thought, I thought something would work. And I think I had seen, you know, with my, with my dad and my mom enough things that they, they tried that worked and and then the ones that failed and, but it kind of averages out over the end and you, you know, you make it, make a life for yourself, but I don't think I ever pictured, you know, again, that, that I didn't, I think I really knew what real wealth looked like. Yeah. And so on that note, what's next for you? I think the same thing. Yeah. I I owe a huge amount to the internet and to, I mean, I think we, anyone listening to this podcast, like, you know, does. And if, you know, if you think back, if you think of 2016, is sort of this interesting turning point. It was a turning point for a lot of different reasons. It's when Brexit happened. It's the Trump elections. There was a bunch of instability in in Europe and and Asia. But it also was sort of this turning point where we went from sort of this naive version of how we thought of the internet. Where and I think the symbolic change was in July of 2016. Um, the Associated Press said you no, no longer have to capitalize the I in internet anymore. And I think that that's the point in time where it went from being this miracle to being this thing where it had, you know, we took it for granted. It's just like oxygen. And now we're complaining at how the, how dirty the air is. And that the metaphor, you know, that I, I, I use is it's a little like, like the 40 years prior to 2016 is like episode four of Star Wars, you know, A New Hope, which is a really bad movie if you go back and, and watch it. Um, <laughs> I haven't watched it in a while, but. I think that was my favorite one, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's this, it's like, there's, there's this magical new thing called, you know, the force, except for it was the internet. Yeah. And yeah. there were these people called Jedi who controlled it, except instead of Jedi, it was developers and web administrators. And, you know, they took on the most powerful forces in the universe, this giant Death Star thing. And were able to, you know, with a certain amount of pluck kind of defeat it. And yet that's exactly what the internet did for traditional sources of power, whether that was government, religion, education, the media, the family. I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly disruptive to those things. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things about that that were really good. There were also, you know, we have to acknowledge there were some things that 
that have been really challenging about that. I'm sure there were a lot of very innocent people that were blown up when Luke dropped those things down the shaft on, on the Death Star. And the movie that comes after episode four is episode five, which is The Empire Strikes Back, which is a really good movie if you go back. But it's a really depressing movie. And they had to actually reshoot the ending because it was so, because people were so depressed, you know, coming out of it. Cause it, you know, the hero is his best, the person he thinks is his best friend, like steals the girl that he likes. And then he doesn't actually really like the girl. And he, the, the best friend gets encased in this plastic stuff. And the girl gets sold off to slug slavery. Meanwhile, the hero, you know, learns that his mortal enemy is his father. It's dark stuff. And yet I think that's what's happening to the internet right now. And you just see an enormous set of forces around the world that are pushing to say, we're going to put this thing back in a box. And whether that's what's happening in Russia right now, where they're re- or Iran, where they're re- trying to recreate what, what China is doing, whether it's, you know, the sort of German government, which is, which again, I think it's sort of almost Jar Jar Binks-like in, in you know, trying to do the right thing, but being very ham-handed about, about it or, or, you know, Montana banning TikTok. Like, I mean, these are things where these are enormous threats to this, what I think of as one of the great inventions of, of human history and, and certainly the thing that I owe, you know, my career and my success to. And so I think my, the rest of my career will be, you know, hopefully piloting, you know, Cloudflare, which is our own little Millennium Falcon, which is at times feels like a bucket of bolts. But um, if we can help make sure that the internet, you know, continues to be a viable global network and, and it has problems that we should acknowledge, but is mostly a, a source of, of good in the world. I think I can't imagine anything more important to do with the rest of my life. You got to relate it back to the return of the Jedi too. Well, I don't, uh, yeah. It's, the question is when are, when are we going to see the Ewoks? I think we're, I, I'm not sure I will live to see the Ewoks, but maybe, maybe in the final, you know, the final, final bit we'll have, we'll have, yeah. we'll have Ewoks dancing in, in the forest, but we'll see. Could be something to do with all the UFO news coming up. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah. Last question for you. What would be your one piece of advice for someone that wants to pursue their dreams, whatever that might be, whether it's getting into the internet and that side of things or just anything, you know, what's something that you wish you heard or that you did hear that like really kept you going during that grind in the beginning? You know, I don't know if it's what kept me growing, but it's, it's certainly what I wish I'd done differently, which is it's amazing how much the just people you meet along the way and the relationships pay off and all kinds of different things. It's, it's the value of you any school that you go to is that the people who you meet there, even if you weren't super close while you were there, it's it's amazing how they they wind in and out of your life over that period of time. And so I think, you know, taking the time to sort of honor those relationships and really build them. And I think that I would, you know, the thing I regret, again, it's all worked out really well, but I wish I had had the opportunity to go, you know, at some point in my career, you know, work at, you know, at a Cloudflare or at a Google or at a Facebook or at, at a company where I could, you could see a little bit more of how it's done. I think a lot of people are, are trying to sort of rush into that. But if you look at that sort of 10 years of my life between sort of the end of college and, and the beginning of, of business school, where I was sort of wandering in the wilderness, there's a lot of that time that I think that I, I could have learned a lot more and built better networks and done things if I had actually just gone and, you know, showed up at, at a company and, and, and really seen what it was like to build a business from there. That doesn't mean that, you know, you can't then go off to be an entrepreneur later, but I think that I look at like someone like Michelle who, who did a, a little bit more of a traditional track. And I think that she's got a lot more, both people and experiences from the business world to pull on. And that's something that I, that I wish I had done more of. And I think it would, um, 
I think I'd, I'd both have a lot more friends, which would be, um, which is, which is super important. And also just probably have made a lot fewer mistakes along the way. If, if I'd just seen, you know, not just how other people had done it. And you also would also have just the confidence of knowing that when everything feels like it's broken internally, it's just because that's how almost always everything feels, regardless of what company you're at. You know, if you're at even the biggest companies in the world feel like a chaotic mess if you if you get inside of them. And that's that's kind of just the, the normal state of play of, of what success looks like. I was going to say, running a business, it's just organized chaos at every level. Like the big, Apple, Microsoft, same thing. That's what I've heard from all the leaders. It just continues that way. So it's just, and, and how much everyone is just kind of, like I love the conspiracy theories that come out about, you know, how, you know, where I mean, God knows what. And yeah. you're just like, I've met all those people. We are not nearly organized enough. <laughs> That's exactly my response to that stuff. It's like, I'm sorry. Like, I've seen the simplest of execution get screwed up by every name you just mentioned. Like, no, that is not what they're doing right now. Totally. And it's, and, and it's, you know, and, and, but so much of it is just, can you build up enough? Can you either be frugal enough or building up enough resources to have enough, you know, swings of the bat that, that exactly. eventually you, you, you figure one out. And then when you do, kind of invest and it's like, oh, that worked and you invest behind it. And I think that that's, um, sometimes people think that there's a secret now, like there, that the, the secret is just be as frugal as you possibly can and, and accumulate as many resources you can, as you can and surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are. And, and that, um, that tends to, that tends to work out. So, and keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you're having problems with riverside.fm, I think clearing, going in and clearing all of your browser chats might be the because that's, I think, what finally worked. Of all the interviews, I would have technical problems. Well, Matthew, thank you. It's been awesome to have you on Hawk Talk. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.